This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.36, The Mountain Won't Come to Camille. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I get sick every time we start to get ahead. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and trying my very best not to catch Tom's cold, even though we spend basically all of our time together. I think I've failed. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 290 patrons. Thank you all. And special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Luke S., Jordan W., Brent W., Fuya, and Colin M. We are so close to 300 patrons. (laughs) Thank you everyone who signed up this week. We are just 10 people away. We are also really close to our $2,000 a month patron goal, which is that I start making little mini episodes every month, either about translation or Japanese language, or basically just things related to Japanese language that come up in the show. Another way you can support us is to write us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. A special thanks to some listeners who have recently reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, Starofim, Patrick J. Humphrey, Rick Dew, Brooks Bonwich, Riri, and DeepFly77. Your reviews really do help new listeners find the podcast and help Mobile Suit Breakdown grow. We are pleased to announce our Love is the Pulse of the Memes winners. The random prize bundle went to Renato R. For judges prize number one, my favorite was Char Asimble is Such a Cool Guy, a meme from the classic Distracted Lieutenant format created by Hooligan Tuesday. Judges prize number two, Tom selected The Cat's Meow, a meme riffing on the Valentine's Day cards of our youth by Quantum Noddle. And the People's Choice Grand Prize, following fierce competition and several rounds of voting, went to Kurt F's timely and perfectly executed advertisement for Henkin Beckner's campaign. (laughs) Congratulations to all the winners. Uh, We will be shipping out those prizes very soon. Before we get back to Gundam, we have a special message for you this week. As you know, we don't do ads here at Mobile Suit Breakdown. But occasionally we do like to tell you when cool people are working on cool projects that we like and we think you might like. Nina and I both love playing tabletop role-playing games. And when we launched our Patreon a little over a year ago, one of the benefits that we plan to offer our patrons was regular installments of MSB Plays, a tabletop gaming actual play podcast set in the world of First Gundam that would have featured us, joined by some friends and collaborators who you would recognize from their occasional guest appearances on the podcast. For various reasons that are entirely my fault, we never quite managed to publish any episodes of MSB Plays, but we did play the game, and the gaming system that we chose to use for our Universal Century Adventures was the beta version of an indie role-playing game developed by games designer, mecha fan, and podcast host Austin Ramsey. This was a game steeped in Gundam's DNA. 
that captured both the exciting action of giant mech combat and the squishy human feelings that mecha is really and has always really been about. It balances flexibility, complexity, and accessibility in one easy-to-learn, quick-to-play package that was just fun, and tense, and sometimes gut-wrenching, just like Gundam. We reached out to Austin about using his system for our podcast, and he was extremely generous with us. We became fans of his work, and he became a fan of ours. That game was Beam Saber, and fast forward a year, while MSB Plays has still not come out due to continuing problems that are again entirely my fault, Beam Saber has moved on from its beta stage and is now just a few days away from debuting on crowdfunding platform Kickstarter. If it's successful there, it will get the full, beautifully illustrated first edition print release that it deserves. Hundreds of mecha and role-playing game fans are waiting eagerly for it, and we're among them. You should be too. The Kickstarter launches on March 2nd, 2020, but you can go to tinyurl.com slash beamsaberkickstarter today and sign up to get notified when it starts. But now back to Gundam. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 35, Storm Over Kilimanjaro. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode covers the cactus flower that inspired the cactus flower in last week's Episode 34, The Call of Darkness. But first, let's tune in to Titans News Network. Hey, Lieutenant Nina. I've been wondering, do you think Ayug pays their people, or...? No, definitely not. They're all doing it for exposure, for sure. That's why they all have side hustles. Are you looking for a hard-to-find mobile suit part? Got a junk suit you need to unload quick and no questions asked? Come on down to Astanaji's uncertified pre-owned mobile suit emporium and chop shop. You want deals? We got deals. Authentic first-generation Gelgoog internals? We got them. Non-essential components for my Hyakushiki? We got them. Nemo's at suspiciously low prices? You'd better believe we got them. Plus half off on about one quarter of a methos. Swing by Astanaji's today and remember, we accept cash, check, credit, or suitcase full of untraceable gold. The only thing we won't take is responsibility. Fighting again. Memories of past loves now long gone getting in the way of your marriage. Does it feel like the love that was once so strong is fading? In troubled times like these, sometimes it seems like Minovsky particles are interfering with our hearts. Don't give in without a fight. At Mirai's Marriage Counseling, we specialize in new types of couples and relationship counseling, like our patent-pending Far Away and Here Today Therapy. It can be hard for a partner left behind on Earth, but our trained counselors know exactly what your partner is thinking, as if their thoughts were our own. We will reflect the image of your loved one into your mind so that you'll have no anxieties and your children will be able to grow up properly. Listen up, kid. I know what you want. Respect, not to be beaten up all the time, to keep your friends alive, and to date between one and all the ladies. These things might seem impossible, but once you learn and apply the secrets in this new book, secrets like, just be a little bit nice to her, you too can change your life. Pick up How to Go from Recreation to Romance, Six Secrets for Success in Space by Camille Bidon, a man. Available now at jobberobooks.fed, Barzums and Noble, and is now Doomla Audiobook. Famous Captain Bright Noah remembers how hard life was on the White Base. They needed emergency rations and tasteless nutritive paste for weeks or months at a time, and there was never enough to grow around. What little fresh fruit they had mysteriously disappeared from the kitchens. 
It got so bad that even pilots were giving up their meals so that refugee children could eat. It's safe to say he knows the value of a good meal. That's why, whenever he's in port, he always goes to the nearest McDaniel's old-fashioned family restaurant and orders his favorite, a double burger combo with extra salt. Here at McDaniel's, we call it the Bright Burger. Ingrates! Incompetent buffoons! I thought you were supposed to be professionals! The Wong Lee School of Management. Come back here! How dare you run from me! This ship needs discipline! Accelerated MBA programs for busy professionals, taught by esteemed managers at today's top companies. You new types are all the same! Worthless! Useless! I should fire all of you! Would anyone like some juice? The Wong Lee School of Management. If you're planning your next vacation and bored by the same old pleasure cruises, then come check out the exciting listings on Space Bed and Battleship. Like this one just posted by user XXTorres69XX. For less than the cost of a hotel, you can rent a cabin aboard an AUG cruiser. We can't tell you which one, but it starts with an A. Check it out now on our website, spacebnb.side. See what I mean? Sorry? Sorry. <laughs> I was ordering a book to read on my next Space BNB cruise. And now the recap for The Storm Over Kilimanjaro. Well docked at the repair ship, La Vienne Rose, the crew of the Argama get a much needed rest. Yet the moment they are resupplied, Bright receives word that they are needed for a joint operation with Karaba to provide a distraction and support from space while Karaba attacks the Titan's base at the summit of Kilimanjaro. In the briefing room, Camille's anger at Quattro and eagerness to return to Earth boil over. Are they just supposed to stand by and watch Karaba's forces die? Apoli and Fa try to calm him down, and Fa impatiently explains the plan to him again. They don't have enough mobile suits on the Argama to capture an entire Titan's base. And while the Argama attacks from space, the mobile suit pilots will need to be ready to defend her. Camille isn't interested in reason, calling Quattro a coward and saying that his attitude is what got Rekoa killed. He storms out of the room, and Lieutenant Quattro calls the briefing to a close. Stalking down the hall, Camille realizes he's not really in any position to criticize Quattro. But the memory of his kiss with Four is clear in his mind, and he wants to descend to Earth so badly. Before the operation begins, he officially gives the freshly repaired Haro to Shintan Kum, and asks Fa to look after Rekawa's cactus plant. When, surprised, she asks him why, he assures her it's no particular reason. The Argama has moved on, but Yazan has not. He is back with Captain Gadi and plans to lead a group of Hambrabi and new Barzam mobile suits in pursuit of the Argama. As the Argama approaches Africa from just outside Earth's atmosphere, the Titans on Earth begin to launch missiles at them. Evading these attacks, the Argama fires its own missiles and megaparticle cannon at the Kilimanjaro base. Yazan waits until the Argama is occupied with dodging a second barrage of missiles, then orders his squadron to attack, focusing on the Zeta Gundam. The Hambrabi use a new weapon, a large chunk of metal at the end of a long, thin cable, to entangle the Zeta, and Quattro in the Hyakushiki has to cut Camille free. Intercepting a second attack meant for the Zeta, the Hyakushiki is struck square in the chest and begins to malfunction. 
With no responsiveness in the mobile suit's controls, the Hyakushiki begins to fall through Earth's atmosphere. Camille shifts the Zeta into its Wave Rider form and retrieves the red-hot Hyakushiki, shielding it for the remaining of the descent to Earth. Unwilling to risk re-entry themselves, Yazan's men let them go. At the base of Kilimanjaro, animals flee, falling bombs and explosions erupting in every direction. It seems the Karba have devoted a significant portion of their forces to the assault, but are still struggling to capture the base. On the slopes of the mountain, snow is falling, and Quattro and Camille land near a small lake. Somehow, despite the cold, it remains unfrozen, and Quattro wonders whether it might provide water for the base. While he and Camille consider what to do next, a massive door opens in the side of the mountain, and the Psycho Gundam emerges. The Hyakushiki and Zeta Gundam hide in the lake under a ledge, and Camille uses his mind to reach out to the Psycho Gundam, thrilled at the thought that Four might still be alive, but he can tell that she is not inside the gigantic mobile armor. Once it passes, Quattro gets out of his mobile suit and asks Camille to wait there while he looks for a possible underwater entrance to the base. Despite these instructions, Camille follows and emerges from the oily, refuse-filled water right behind Quattro. When the lieutenant points out that now the Titans could capture their mobile suits, Camille can only respond that he simply does not trust Quattro to handle the situation. Walking down the passage, Camille can hear screaming. Somehow, Quattro doesn't hear it. The sound intensifies, and Camille clutches his head in pain. Quattro wants them to turn back, but Camille insists that they press on and follows the sound through the halls. Deep inside the base, Four reclines on a chair in an empty room. A helmet, cables and wires streaming out of it, is strapped to her head. The loudly humming machinery is almost drowned out by her cries of pain, and she writhes in the chair, seemingly in agony. A group of scientists and technicians monitor her through a window adjusting settings and watching readouts from their sensors. Admiral Hymem joins them, criticizing their techniques. Won't this amount of pain make her useless to them? The lead scientist assures him that it's the remote control that requires so much power. Piloting the Psycho Gundam from within its cockpit will not have this effect. Just as Hymem is leaving the room, Camille and Quattro are coming down the hall. They all stand, shocked for a moment before Quattro fires his gun, and Hymum just barely manages to dive out of the way. He runs, they chase him, and they find themselves trapped in a room with four, locked in and unable to shoot their way out. The window is bulletproof. Four wakes up, but doesn't recognize Camille or respond to his questions. She talks about mobile suit testing, and when she leaves the room, Camille and Quattro follow her. Camille keeps trying to reach her, but she still doesn't recognize him. Quattro yells at him to stay away and points his gun, warning Camille, you'll be possessed by her. Camille shoves the gun away, insisting that she's being mind-controlled somehow. They don't have to kill her. She climbs into the Psycho Gundam, and they rush to their own mobile suits. Four cuts a swath across the battlefield, the destructive power of the Psycho Gundam on full display. Amuro, in a new DJ mobile suit, links up with Quattro and Camille. He and Quattro keep yelling at Camille to get back, to stay away from Four, but Camille is determined to break through whatever blocks her from remembering him. Clutching her head in pain, Four's memory suddenly comes back. You're the reason I must continue to suffer, she cries out, lashing out with the Psycho Gundam's mega particle cannon. Karaba's forces, Amuro, Quattro, and Camille with them, are forced to retreat. Amuro, after seeing how Camille acts around Four, pointedly asks Quattro, why didn't you keep him away from her? 
I'm sure you're aware of the consequences. Do you intend to let the same thing happen again? Quattro has no response, and they fly on, leaving the smoking summit of Mount Kilimanjaro behind them. Well, I finally feel able to articulate my problem with Zeta as a series. Okay, and it only took you 35 episodes. Well, it's difficult, right? Early on, I knew I didn't really care about these characters that much, but it was difficult to explain why. I think I have some of it (laughs) now. (laughs) Okay. Zeta is all build-up and no payoffs ever. Mm. Think about they spent an entire episode demonstrating how obnoxious Wong Lee is. It was a major plot point. It took up a lot of the substance of the previous episode. And it had some presence in episodes before that as well. But it it built, right? Mm -hmm. This was in some ways the climax of that. That he doesn't really know what he's talking about, but he's constantly in everyone's business and acting like he knows better than them and... Interfering with Bright's command. Interfering with things he shouldn't, but feels he has a right to. And we feel that sort of come to a head at the end of the episode where it takes both Bright and Quattro insisting on something to get Wang Li to back down. And then this episode, all we see is Wang Li's back <laughs> as he stays on Levy and Rose when the rest of them move on. Mm-hmm. That's it. What kind of a payoff is that? What kind of a resolution? Like, what was the point of all of those scenes last episode if that wasn't going to go anywhere? Mm-hmm. Like, narratively, why did we spend all this time learning what a pain this guy is only to be like, okay, and we got rid of him and isn't that nice? Like, not even. They don't even say that. (laughs) He's just not there anymore. (laughs) Well, Bright does say it's such a relief that he's not there anymore. We do get that. Um, But it stops the momentum of this storyline dead. And maybe, like hypothetically, the Wong Lee storyline could continue in the future. It's like all of the energy it's built up just hits a brick wall and it stops. Right. And are they going to attempt to rebuild that when we come back around to him, if we come back around to him. Similarly, think about the emotional intensity of last episode and Rekoa, right? Yeah. That is a very emotional episode when it comes to Rekoa. Her admitting that she wants to die, her risking her life, and she gets carried off by Yazan. And this episode, we don't hear a thing. We get Fa's mention on the Argama of, like, we're all grieving Rekoa. But not even the briefest cutaway to show us, is Rekawa a prisoner? Is she an honored guest? Is she in a sick bay? Like, not even the briefest check-in to be like, hey, remember, Rekawa is in fact still alive. And Rekawa's absence is especially problematic because we've established a connection between the Rekawa and Yazan storylines, and yet Yazan is here, Rekawa is not, and what Yazan is doing has nothing to do with Rekawa. Zeta has done this a lot, where storylines just sort of stop abruptly, then pick up again later. They lose all the momentum, and you don't get any payoff. He doesn't think of her. He doesn't imagine her. He doesn't reference her in any way. It's like last episode didn't happen. It's like that in a lot of ways. We've talked about the parallel universes where Fa is a pilot and where (laughs) Fa will never be a pilot again. In this episode, although we don't see Fa piloting, she is in the briefing room sitting with the pilots, Mm -hmm. getting the pilots briefing. 
And in fact, taking Camille to task to be like, you clearly have not been listening or understood at all. (laughs) Here is what Lieutenant Quattro is saying. Yeah, I just don't think that from a like narrative construction point of view, it's a well done series. (laughs) (laughs) And I I'm not the sort of person who tends to be super critical of media. Tom will tell you I tend to be very kind to things because I know it's hard to create. But also, now the being critical is part of my job. I just don't think this narrative is constructed in a way to be very like emotionally resonant with viewers or to even be tight and causal and make sense. Yeah, it doesn't feel compelling. One of the issues I've had with it all along is we always know what the immediate goal is. From the beginning, the immediate goal is steal the Mark II. Or even before that, just surveil the Grips colony base. Then it's steal the Mark II, then it's escape, stop the colony drop on Granada. Like Every episode has a clearly defined immediate goal, but the ultimate goal, the point of all of this, is never clear, never stated, and it's never explained otherwise. What does Ayug want? What do the Titans want? We've actually had more people tell us what the Titans want than we have to <laughs> tell us what Ayug wants. The problem is that With the Titans, we've heard two or three different versions of this story, and we don't know who to believe. They could all be true for different factions within the Titans. They could none of them be true. If the original stated goal of the Titans is to stamp out the Xeon remnants, then it's really weird that they would be forming an alliance with Axis Xeon. If their real goal is to trash the Earth so badly that everyone has to leave, we get some evidence in favor of that today. Because that's what Sirocco said. Yes. My natural response is not to believe anything Sirocco says. Oh, sure. Maybe he was being honest that time. I can also imagine, though, that Sirocco represents a particular like sub-faction within the Titans, that there is a group that wants that. The lack of a clear goal on the part of Ayug actually doesn't bother me, because I think It feels fairly natural to me to have these two groups in opposition and to say (laughs) that the rebel group's goal right now is just to defeat the established group. They haven't actually really articulated what victory would mean and what will happen after. Everything about their existence is about opposition to the Titans. If they win, if the Titans are gone, then what? Mm -hmm. They They don't actually know. Again, Various factions within probably have ideas of what they want to happen, but the cohesiveness of the whole group to a certain degree depends on subterfuge because all of these different interests, all of these different interests that make up Ayug probably want quite different things. And if they were honest about that, could they work together to fight the Titans or would they split up into groups so small that they have no chance of fighting the Titans? Mm hmm. Well, and we've speculated before that AUG is probably a group created by the merger of many smaller local independence and resistance movements who could agree on nothing except that the Titans needed to go. Well, and some of them might be content just removing the Titans. Others might feel that the entire Federation needs to be abolished. You know, these are pretty significant differences of opinion <laughs> that they will deal with when they have to. And how many of them are just quattros or recuas? People who can only feel alive when they're in danger. People who just like piloting mobile suits and infiltrating enemy bases. 
I was thinking recently about another way in which Zeta Gundam and First Gundam are different at a like storytelling DNA level. And it's that in First Gundam, the emotional relationship around which the whole show revolves is this found family on the white base with Bright as the dad, Mirai as the mom, Sela as the big sister, and then you know, the orphans as the little siblings and Amuro in the middle of all of this. Zeta doesn't have that. It has some of the trappings of that. It has, as we've said many times, a kind of shadow of the white base that Quattro has put together on the Argama. But despite occasional scenes of like family relationship, the kind of sibling rivalry you sometimes get between brothers, between Camille and, say, Torres, that's not really what's going on in Zeta. Zeta is all about these binary relationships between a mentor figure and a younger mentee. I was going to say Zeta is all about isolation and alienation. There's a lot of that, <laughs> but... The relationship between Sirocco and Sarah, between Haman and Minerva, and between Quattro and Camille. I suppose when I say that it's about isolation and alienation, I don't mean that there are no relationships. I mean that the quality of those relationships is so poor <laughs> that there is so little real dependence or trust or or mutual like faith <laughs> that they are hollow relationships. Mm-hmm. They're relationships of power and exploitation rather than trust and mutual reliance. Except one, and let's bring it back to this episode, because Camille shows a lot of trust for Fa, both in the previous episode and in this one, when he asks Fa to look in on Rekua, and then in this episode when he asks Fa to look after Rekua's cactus. And not just trust, but also respect. Did you notice when she walks in after the kids are like, well, Camille won't help us. She doesn't even say anything. She just says, Camille. And he's like, oh, fine. <laughs> I understand. I'll do it. I am deeply curious. We're going to look into a potential symbolism of the cactus plant as part of our research this week. And I wonder if there's anything more to him passing that to Fa. Oh, I think there has to be. Like, it's not just about, hi, I'm planning on going to Earth and maybe never coming back. Please look <laughs> after the like last thing that we have that belonged to this person we cared about. You think at that point he was already planning to go down to Earth? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Even though he'd been ordered not to? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree totally. He was. Hasn't he just thought to himself, I really want to go to Earth? <laughs> Camille doing what he wants to do instead of what Quattro tells him to do? What? What is that even? I mean, he's not super pleased with Quattro right now. <laughs> no. Would, do you think he'd have saved Quattro if it hadn't provided the perfect opportunity to go down to Earth? Probably because Camille is a good boy, <laughs> but it definitely helped make that decision for him. He, he would not have been so enthusiastic about it. Yeah. Would he have gone down to Earth if Quattro hadn't gotten himself into some trouble? I think he might have found a way. Yeah. Eventually something would have happened. And Yeah. Oh, no, I'm falling down to Earth. Right. Oh, I've been pulled into the gravity well. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But I did want to cut back just briefly. She was talking about him giving the plant to Fa. He does another very significant thing in this episode, which is he officially gives Haro to the kids. Not just in the episode, but in the same scene. He hasn't spent time with Haro in ages. We've seen Haro more with the kids and a little bit with Fa. And the handful of times when Haro has tried to interact with Camille, Camille has mostly ignored him. But as we've pointed out before, Haro symbolizes childhood. And we've seen Camille go from clinging to that from it being very important to him to have that, 
to him mostly ignoring it, and finally to him realizing, oh, I don't really need or want this anymore, and I should pass it on to someone who does need it and want it. Mm-hmm. A little sidebar about the kids. I think this may be a translation issue, but did you notice when Quattro tells Fa, like, oh, if you want the kids to stay on the ship, you'd better hide them, an inspector's going to come. In the English translation in the subtitles, it's presented like a, oh, in case you were wondering, (laughs) here is some information. But her delivery, when she responds, makes it seem like he ordered her to hide the kids. Isn't that just Quattro all over? He has essentially completely abdicated responsibility for these children too far. Like, he adopted these kids. Mm -hmm. He brought them onto the Argama. Yep. He abandoned them again. It's like, if you want them to stay, (laughs) you'd better hide them. Exactly. But again, this is like how Quattro interacts with Bright. He doesn't give an order. He doesn't even necessarily express his own preference. He just makes it known what he thinks you should do. It's worth considering whether there might also be sort of a cultural linguistic element here of, uh, I cannot speak to this with certain knowledge, but I can easily imagine that in Japan, if your superior makes a suggestion in a mild way, (laughs) that is in fact an instruction. I don't even need to say that that's a Japanese thing. I have worked in offices (laughs) where that was the case. I have gotten into trouble for interpreting a comment like that as merely a comment and not a command. An instruction. (laughs) Yeah, you know, they're trying to not pull rank on you and be like, do this right now. You are meant to interpret it as do this right now. And I think Fa's response in that scene is very indicative of that. Putting both the giving away of Haro and the giving away of responsibility for the cactus, which from the scene, we can presume that Camille has been taking care of Rekua's cactus since she died, which is not something we would have expected from Camille 15 episodes ago. I think that's another sign of his development as a person. But putting them both together in this scene invites a comparison to the way Rekua purged her life of all the things that mattered to her in prior episodes. This connection is also suggested by something Camille says when he's talking to Fa. He says, I hate the selfishness of children. Reminiscent, perhaps, of what Rekoa said about her plants, which was that their untidiness annoyed her. And together with Camille's stated desire to go down to earth, we see perhaps a desire to run away from all of this, to cut ties and go. But I don't think that's what Camille is about. I think it's more a contrast, actually, than a comparison, because Rekua didn't care what happened to her plants. She she just got rid of them. We didn't see her carefully, like, giving them to crew members and being like, oh, can you look after my plants? She just got rid of stuff. Camille is very thoughtfully and deliberately like, oh, Fa will take good care of this plant, so Fa can have my plant. And the kids will love Haro, so the kids are going to have Haro. Rekua was running away. Camille is running towards. That's good. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I have to. <laughs> you know, we've spent a lot of time on this scene with the kids, in part because it's one of the most interesting and emotionally important scenes of the episode, but also because it feels like most of the scenes in this episode have been abbreviated because so much has to happen in this episode. Mm-hmm. Like, think back to. When they did the Jaburo drop operation earlier in the show, in which they did functionally the same thing. They did an airdrop onto an enemy base, they infiltrated it, they escaped, and they made contact with their local Earth friends. 
But that played out over like three episodes. This all takes place in one episode. Yeah. The battle in space feels especially shortchanged. Once they've done the setup of launching everybody and showing us who's going to be fighting, the actual fight takes only a couple of seconds, only a couple of engagements. But it, combined with the scenes we got earlier on the Alexandria of Yazan with Gadi, does show us something very interesting about Yazan. Their surprise at seeing him act like a normal, responsible person. (laughs) Well, he's changed so much, hasn't he? Yeah. He is complimentary to them and their crew. He shakes hands willingly. He, like competently leads a unit. He doesn't immediately rush in to fight the Zeta with suicidal zeal. When the Zeta is heading towards Earth, he actually tells one of his wingmen, don't pursue. He has a plan. There are strategies. And not for nothing, over the past three or four episodes, in each episode, Yazan has deployed some new kind of trickery. The spider web, those dummy balloons, now the sea serpent. What I have dubbed the electric space (laughs) yo-yo. Yazan has been, if you ask me, brain poisoned. But in a good way? In a way that is convenient for Sirocco. Well, in a way that makes him more socially acceptable. And a more useful tool for Sirocco. Yeah. Go back to the previous episodes. Watch the handful of scenes that Sirocco and Yazan share together. In each one... Yazan looks physically uncomfortable. And a bit bewildered. He looks a little confused. He pulls away from Sirocco a little bit. We don't get a new type sound effect. There's no flashing lights or weird colors or anything like that. But I think it's clear that something is happening to Yazan that we can't see that is doing something to Yazan. And if it were just those scenes, I would ignore it. It would seem like too much of a stretch, but it's not just those scenes. It's those scenes plus this clear change in Yazan's character that we have noticed and that characters in the show have noticed. He's had that effect on a few people now. I would say Sarah has certainly been affected. It's been less obvious. We've spent less time with Sarah. But think about the Sarah who served under Jared. Mm Mm-hmm who was very aggressive and outspoken and a little bit like prickly uh, compared to the Sarah who smilingly serves drinks on the bridge. Right. The Sarah in Jared's squadron was like, I'm going to be so good that I'll never need to kill anybody. I'm a hero. And the Sarah that serves under Paptimus Sama would kill the world for him. She doesn't even flinch when Yazan pats her on the shoulder. What? (laughs) She hates Yazan, but maybe not anymore. Mm. Uh, And then as we've talked about at length, we've seen it in Rekua. And here we, we see sort of the culmination of that arc with Yazan. Right. Now, unfortunately, the question we have to ask when we see characters changing like this is, is this good writing or is this bad writing? Is this inconsistent characterization or is this actually that there's intentionality behind this and there's something going on that's not being expressly stated? The problem is we can't really know until the series ends because to some degree it depends on what they do with it, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's intentional. The way it has built over time feels intentional to me, but all the intentionality in the world won't mean anything if, again, if there's no payoff. (laughs) These characters changed for some reason we're never going to talk about. It's never going to be relevant again. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) 
in a funny way, Camille seems sort of cognizant of some of the relationship problems we've identified (laughs) in the story. Because at one point, he tells Quattro, your attitude is what got Rekawa killed. And in my notes, I have a series of questions because we don't know precisely what he means by that. Does he mean Quattro's sort of distance that he imposes between himself and other people, his inability to love anyone, his lack of care for others? But these all tie into those unhealthy relationships that we talked about. And they all tie into the fact, again, that we we don't have the found family situation because most of these people are incapable (laughs) of caring about others in that way or like being vulnerable in that way with other people. Mm -hmm. And given what we know about Tomino's attitude towards adults and some of the recurring characters, because we have Bright again, but we have an older Bright. We have a Bright who has his own wife and children now, you know? The whole crew on average is much older than they were on the white base. They're just not as emotionally vulnerable. They're not as honest. They are not forming those connections as easily or at all. Like, not for nothing, these are, for the most part, professional or semi-professional soldiers who signed up for this, have been trained for this, and are old enough for this. In First Gundam, these were the people who all got killed or wounded in the first episode and then shuffled off screen so that we never saw them again. That moment of Camille looking at Quattro and saying, this is the problem, <laughs> felt like hanging a lampshade on, the, mm. <laughs> on all of the interpersonal stuff mm-hmm. of the show. How much of that problem, that inability to connect, inability to trust, inability to form those important emotional bonds comes from the fact that this is a show about Quattro and the people Quattro has assembled. Quattro might have built a white base, but he's built Quattro's white base. Well, because he doesn't, on a fundamental level, he does not understand what made the white base special. It's a little bit like trying to create a piece of art by formula, right? You look at a beautiful painting and you say, well, it's got two women and a tree and a stream. And so if I put two women, a tree and a stream in my painting, it will also be marvelous. (laughs) You know, uh, will it? (laughs) (laughs) It's yet another point on the side of Camille growing up and developing a better sense of other people and a, a sort of better knowledge of himself. And there's one other way I felt like we really see that in this episode. Is it when Quattro orders Camille to stay behind and Camille immediately follows him and is like, I do not trust you to handle this situation? No, although that (laughs) is a wonderful moment. It's that Camille deliberately and consciously uses his new type abilities. Hmm. He feels for four. When the Psycho Gundam appears, he thinks to himself, oh, whoa, is four alive? He concentrates and then he says, that's not four in there. Later, when she is in the Psycho Gundam and they're fighting and he's trying to reach her, again, he concentrates. He thinks at her for it's me. Like he's using his abilities to try to bust through whatever is being done to her so that she will remember him. It's conscious. He's doing it on purpose. It's not just an accidental or a happenstance thing. That's amazing. Yeah. And they draw almost no attention to it. (laughs) It took Amaro like, oh yeah, just about 35 episodes to be able to start doing that in First Gundam too. But that is both a blessing and a curse. In this episode, 
for the first time, maybe we see Camille overwhelmed by the powerful new type waves coming off of four when she's in this device. He's in agony. He's barely able to stay standing. So I I did wonder, is he in pain because of a, a sympathy of a sort with four? Or is he in pain because this machine, for all that four is hooked up to it, the machine itself is somewhat indiscriminate. And so he is feeling a, a fraction of what four is feeling because Hmm. of something coming off of the machine. See, I thought it was more that the machine was like broadcasting. It's like being in proximity to a very loud siren. Mm. And Quattro's hearing is just not that good. And so while he can hear that there's a noise, it's not enough to cause him that physical discomfort that Camille is feeling. So it's that the machine is amplifying for... If it could do that without causing her pain, he would still sense for, but it wouldn't be painful. But because it, in amplifying her, is also painful, she is just like emitting pain. Well, it's not even what she's emitting. It's simply the volume of the signal, Mm -hmm. I assume. But yes, it's a machine that is amplifying her powers so that she can control the Psycho Gundam remotely. Just like the helmet that Lala wore in mm. the Elmeth mm-hmm. that allowed her to control the bits. I think that's what Quattro is getting at when he says, I've encountered this before. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by an idea that came up when Camille's two dads, <laughs> Quattro and Amaro, <laughs> started sort of sniping at each other over, well, Amaro says to Shar, why didn't you keep them apart? It's- you know it's risky. It's natural when you have shared custody, there are going to be disagreements about how you bring up the kids. Certain parenting decisions, who you let the kids befriend. Uh, But Quattro uses the phrase, she'll possess you. And we looked up the Japanese word, and it does mean that. It means spirit possession. We know that Quattro can still sense Lala. We don't know if this is constant, if she's like a constant presence, or if every once in a while he just like picks a little something up. They, that's never made clear. Mm-hmm. He can't feel her if he goes past Mars. And we do get some evidence that you can't feel her on Earth because he talks about Amuro being scared to go back up into space because he would feel Lala again up there. And based on Amuro's comments, I cannot help but wonder, does he feel literally haunted by Lala. Not haunted like, oh, a traumatic thing happened to me, but haunted like her ghost (laughs) hangs out and scares me and torments me. Mm -hmm. I think he does. I think he gives every indication of that being the case. (laughs) Or, Or some other, something else about the way that they connected has permanently altered or affected him has changed him intrinsically Hmm. in a way that he now feels was negative. Because otherwise, why would he be trying to protect Camille from it? It's possible Amaro just thinks of it as a horrible trauma that he endured and that he wants Camille to not have to go through, while Quattro sees himself as having forever been changed by the experience. The thing about Shiquattro (laughs) is that For at least as long as we've known him, there has been so little him there. There's a lot of action. Initially, there's this driving hunger for revenge. But even that isn't enough to sustain him, and we see him go astray from that throughout the course of First Gundam. And when you are, as Dr. Shar would say, just a marble in a coffee can rattling around, it's very easy to 
grab onto external things and say, this external thing is what I am. This external thing gives me this element of my personality. And so maybe in the aftermath of Lala's death, Shaquatra has constructed a Lala idol within his psyche that he is able to project certain things onto that he can't himself feel, but that if he gives them to her, then he can feel them through this construct of her. And finally, we have a return to a semi-consistent Gundam theme, uh, which is environmentalism. We get two brief shots of animals fleeing the destruction on the slopes of Kilimanjaro, uh, a herd of giraffes and a vulture. But these are, as I said, very brief and nowhere near as poignant as the same scenes in First Gundam in, in the jungles of the Amazon, for instance. Or the equivalent scenes in the jungles of the Amazon earlier in Zeta, uh, where we had the two monkeys, for instance. We also get the very pointed, oh, look, the Titans aren't purifying their water. They're putting oil and other wastes into it. It's full of litter. Like, this is how the people in charge of the Earth treat the Earth. But the forces of Ayug and Karaba are also blowing up the Earth for all that they are ostensibly trying to protect the Earth in a grand, abstract kind of way. In the practical, day-to-day realities of their operations, they are also firing missiles at Kilimanjaro. It's very telling. When Camille notices how polluted the water is, he is indignant. Quattro is like, don't complain, it got us into the base. (laughs) Quattro cares about winning the battle. We get no indication that Quattro actually cares about (laughs) the state of the Earth as an ecosystem as a place where people could live. Well, and call back to when he was talking to Wong Li about the Jaburo attack, and he briefly raised some opposition, saying, but won't that cause damage to the Earth? But then immediately drops the point. And we have heard a few people at various points throughout the series say that they want to move humanity off of Earth because they think that's the only way to save the planet is that if people don't live on it anymore, then maybe it can be recovered. And we've heard people on both sides of the spectrum say this, I think. I think we've heard we've heard Sirocco say it, and we don't know whether or not we believe him. But I believe we've heard Ayug or Karaba people say it as well. Well, we've had Blex suggest that all politicians need to move into space. And yeah, I, th- I think that's there. A sense almost of, of wanting to preserve Earth I think of it almost as like a national park, an international park. Nobody lives there, but here it is for people to visit and enjoy and appreciate as a kind of preserve. So you said that was finally, but I have a couple more things that I wanted to talk about. Oh, no. Mechanics, specifically. (laughs) Okay. We meet two new mobile suits in this episode, the Titans Barzam and the Karaba unique DJ mobile suit. It's true. They don't actually tell you its name, but I saw it and I was like, oh, Tom, what's the mobile suit with the little wingling things? <laughs> yep. Nina likes the DJ. Nina likes the wingling things. And we'll talk more about that one in the future. But I do want to talk briefly about the Barzam and the scene in which it appears. The Barzam has a few interesting features. First, it's got the mono eye. We've seen a bunch of Titans mobile suits with mono eyes, but the Barzam is introduced with a close-in shot on the mono eye. It does a little track back and forth, it glows, 
It looks pretty cool. It's one of those scenes that's like, look at how detailed we can make the mechanics. But this scene appears right after cutting from a view of the Alexandria from behind. And the thing about the Alexandria from behind is the Alexandria is a unique looking ship. It doesn't really look like any other ship in the Gundam franchise so far, except that if you look at it from behind with its engines on, it looks almost exactly like a Musai. The orientation of the engines, the bridge, and the way the engines sort of block out all of the details that don't look like a Musai gives it that look. And then we cut immediately to the mono-eye. They're doing a Xeon aesthetics thing with the Titans here. Mm. I did notice during the attack on Kilimanjaro, Titans are using a lot of very Xeon-looking suits to defend their Kilimanjaro base. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if they are... Zaku, but they look like Zaku. Those are old Hyzaks. Okay. There's the like army green. There's a red one. The Marasai. But at such a distance that you get sort of a like Char's red Zaku vibe. Mm -hmm. um, the aesthetic is definitely very <laughs> Zeon. Yeah. And the other thing about the Barzam is uh, it has a massive protrusion, either a thruster or a refueling port located exactly on its crotch. <sighs> It looks like a duck and quacks like a duck. It is phallic imagery. <laughs> For research this week, we are going to be doing something a little unusual. We have a second talkback, but not about Gundam. We have a talkback about a 1969... Romantic comedy. Yeah. <laughs> In the prior episode of Gundam, they make a big deal about this repeating motif of Rekawa's cactus, which she tends throughout the episode. And at the end, it has blossomed. The cactus flowers have come out and Quattro makes a big deal about it. It's also the last line of the episode. And we kind of fade out on Quattro looking at the cactus flower. So we called our episode The Cactus Flower. And whenever we make one of these episodes, depending on how you're listening to the podcast, you may or may not be seeing the subtitles that go along with the episodes. I always try to come up with something a little clever, a little punchy as a subtitle. I couldn't think of anything good for that episode. So I went to Google and I Googled cactus flowers because I was thinking I could make a pun with Rekawa's name and maybe the Latin name of some species of cactus that kind of sounds like Rekawa. But the first thing that popped up, and actually the first like five or six results when I googled cactus flower, was this Broadway play that was made into a movie called The Cactus Flower. And I read the brief description of it that I came up on Google, and uh, I said, <laughs> I heard him from across the room. I was very concerned. Because just based on the brief description of this movie and the role that the cactus plays in the movie, because there is a cactus in the movie and it does flower, it became abundantly, undeniably clear that the cactus flower in this episode of Zeta Gundam was a really clear allusion to this movie. But why? <laughs> so neither of us had seen the movie. We didn't have time at that point to research it for last week's episode, so we decided we would research it for this week's episode, and we just finished watching it. The film Cactus Flower was released in the United States in 1969 and in Japan later that same year. It's based on a Broadway play by the same name, which is in turn based on a French play. The Broadway show ran for over a thousand performances and was a comeback vehicle for, get this, Lauren Bacall. 
Wow. Yeah. The film stars Walter Matthau, Ingrid Bergman, and Goldie Hawn. Director Gene Sachs also acted and directed on Broadway. Among his film directing credits are The Odd Couple and Barefoot in the Park. The screenwriter, IAL Diamond, also wrote The Apartment and the screenplay for Some Like It Hot. Because I was wondering about this while I was watching the show, uh, Bergman would have been about 54 at the time the movie was shot, and Han about 24. It's really funny. It's really funny. It's available for rent on Amazon. It feels like a play. They do a very nice job of making it into a movie, but you do feel the uh, theater sensibility in it. It has that style of dialogue, which was very common in romantic comedies. What, of the 40s and 50s? (laughs) Yeah, not really common in the 60s, I don't think. As Nina pointed out, this is probably the latest example of this style that we ever encountered. It's very bantery. It's very witty. Snappy. I don't think I have ever seen Ingrid Bergman in a comedy before, and she is hilarious. She is so, so funny. She's great. And Goldie Hawn is in it looking like a child. I mean... (laughs) She's playing a 21-year-old. She's probably around that age herself or a little older. She looks like Twiggy, for those of you who know who Twiggy is. <laughs> she won an Academy Award for that. Oh, wow. Well, she she was also great. Yeah, she was. <laughs> Just a beautiful idiot. <laughs> <laughs> it, we mean that in the best possible way. Right. I, you sort of have to see it to understand. <laughs> for purposes of our talk back, I'm going to provide a synopsis of the movie. Unfortunately, this will spoil a few things, so if you're planning to watch it, and we do recommend that you watch it if you like old romantic comedies, you should pause the podcast here and come back once you've seen it. The movie The Cactus Flower opens on the night of the one-year anniversary of the relationship between Dr. Julian Winston, a successful dentist in his late 40s or 50s, and his 21-year-old girlfriend, Tony Simmons, a clerk in a record shop in Greenwich Village. Tony is very much in love with the dentist, but is also bitterly disappointed because he has blown off their plans for the evening. Dr. Julian, it turns out, is also very much in love with Tony, but he has been committed to the lifestyle of the Playboy Bachelor, and it was only after blowing Tony off for a date with another woman that he realized how strong his feelings for her have become. Tony, back at her West 31st Street apartment and distraught, resolves that she will kill herself by flooding her apartment with gas from her stove. A neighbor, the charmingly quirky wannabe playwright Igor, smells the gas. He breaks into Tony's apartment and he saves her. When he learns of Tony's suicide attempt, Dr. Julian decides to make things right by giving Tony what he thinks she wants and marrying her. The only problem being that in order to avoid making a serious commitment to Tony back when they started dating a year ago, Julian told her that he was a married man with three children. Convinced that admitting to the deception would damage the girl's feelings for him and probably destroy her belief that he is, quote, the only decent man she's ever met, a belief that his ego clearly finds very gratifying, he concocts a plan to have his nurse, the stern and hyper-competent Stephanie Dickinson, pretend to be his wife so that he can play act a fake divorce that will then leave him free to enter into a real marriage with Tony. Stephanie, who has spent the last 10 years handling Dr. Julian's every professional need and most of his personal ones as well, does not want to be involved in the deception. It turns out that she herself is romantically unattached. She lives with her sister's family, a brother-in-law who cheats at Monopoly, two nephews on whom she dotes, and a dog that she takes away to Cape Cod for vacations when she, as she puts it, becomes a different person, wearing blue jeans and painting. She also keeps a cactus on her desk at work. Her first scene in the movie opens with her watering the plant, and she is repeatedly compared to it in both insulting and complimentary ways. 
Despite her opposition to the plan, Stephanie eventually relents. Out of some combination of duty to and fondness for, her ultimately pretty hapless boss. In the nature of such misadventures, Tony keeps pulling on the loose threads embroidering Dr. Julian's lies. He covers each disintegrating lie with another one that requires more performances from Stephanie in the role of Mrs. Julian Winston, as well as the assistance of a cadre of the dentist's patients who get roped into the action as well. Along the way, around the time that she's going to an embassy ball with a philandering diplomat who wants her to be his mistress, the nurse Stephanie Dickinson starts to enjoy the thrill and excitement of this chaotic mess. She also comes to resent the way that Dr. Julian has always taken her work for him for granted, and begrudgingly to acknowledge that she herself has feelings for him. Meanwhile, Dr. Julian, who can never quite run fast enough to get out from under the collapsing edifice of his lies, discovers to his discomfort that he is also becoming jealous of his pretend wife. Things come to a head one morning when the dentist learns that his nurse, Stephanie, spent the night on the beach at Coney Island with his girlfriend Tony's young neighbor, the playwright Igor. This is the same scene in which they discover that the cactus Stephanie has been tending, and with which she has frequently been associated, has blossomed. They fight, using the language of the married couple that they aren't, and Stephanie quits. She calls it a divorce. She storms out, but wanting to help Julian out one last time, she goes to Tony's apartment, and she explains the whole deception to her. This is not an attempt at sabotage, she actually is trying to help. She asks Tony to be understanding. Julian is not bad, he's just weak. Tony seems convinced, and she's ready to give Julian a chance. He arrives almost immediately after Stephanie leaves. At first, it seems like he's going to come clean at last. But instead, he declares that his wife has changed her mind and now refuses to grant him a divorce. So they'll just have to go on as they have been for this past year, with Tony acting as his mistress. Disappointed to hear yet another lie, Tony tells him that it's fine. Things can go on as before. He'll have both his wife and Tony, and she'll have both Julian and Igor. The good dentist is not amenable to this seemingly equitable arrangement and so he breaks off his relationship with the young woman and storms out. Afterward, Tony asks Igor to have dinner with her, making what had been a lie when she first said it into reality. The next morning, Stephanie and Julian run into each other at the office. She has come by to retrieve her flowering cactus. He is sleeping in the dentist's chair after a post-breakup bender. They admit their feelings for each other, and the movie ends with them locked in a passionate embrace, as the camera pans down and focuses on the flowering cactus, while the theme song, The Time for Love is Anytime, plays. But when your heart is ready, you will find that spring is really just a state of mind. Some flowers blossom late, but they're the kind that last the longest. Someday someone will walk into a room, and in no time at all, you'll be in bloom. And that's the timeless wonder of the time for love. Nice. Both the role that the cactus plays in the narrative, the way it's depicted with the scenes of Stephanie watering it and then of it blooming later on, as well as commentary on it, and the similar themes, the young woman who wants to kill herself due to her problems in love, the older, hard-bitten woman who needs to come out of her shell, all of these things match up with the episode of Zeta Gundam we're talking about. And that's why we can be so confident that that episode was constructed to be an allusion, a reference to this movie. So we've been thinking and thinking and thinking about the cactus. We have the, the motif of the opening song, which is called A Time for Love. 
And the line that stuck in my head and that I made a note of was, some flowers blossom late, but they're the ones that last the longest. So we have this point that, like, Rekua is a grown woman. She's in her mid to late 20s. And we get the impression from her behavior she's, like, never been in love. May not really be capable of it. And yet. (laughs) And in the movie, we get constant comparisons between the character of Miss Dickinson, played by Ingrid Bergman, and her cactus, right? That she is also prickly, that she's cold, that she's (laughs) not feminine, that she pushes men away. The dentist has his whole rant at her about how she's afraid to love, afraid to live. Although one must be skeptical about whether or not we are supposed to take that rant seriously as an accurate indictment of her character, because Matthau's Dr. Julian Winston is uh, a rake, uh, a cad, a <laughs> habitual liar, um, just pathetic as a as a character and as a person. Um, he absolutely does not deserve to wind up with Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't deserve to wind up with anyone. But I think the the era of the movie and the genre of the movie required the sort of and now switch where the two different people switch their romantic uh, attachments. Well, and the implication that he has been redeemed, that she has domesticated him. (laughs) Or something like that. Yeah, he certainly uh, he certainly says something like that towards the end. So like I said, it's not clear if we're supposed to take his comments about her personality to be true. Fair. But she also mentions when he's criticizing her for going out and partying, she says, I'm blossoming out. And that's really important, both in Zeta and in the cactus flower. It's not the character falling in love that causes the cactus to blossom. That's not what the flower is about. It's something else. Well, at least in the cactus flower, it's about a sort of freeing herself. Because we know from her earlier comments, it's not like she can't have fun. She has this whole description about how when she's on vacation, she spends all her time in jeans and barefoot painting and with no company but her dog. And like, she can cut loose, but she's had some experiences. She's been burned a couple of times, we learn. And she has to kind of have something that pushes her to open up again. And when you say... She knows how to have fun. She talks about her vacations when she goes up to Cape Cod and puts on jeans and, (laughs) like you said, hangs out with her dog and paints a ton. But that's very solitary. She's very withdrawn. She is prickly. She is very much an island unto herself. I attempted to look up information about the symbolism of cactus flowers, but got a lot of conflicting information and none of it sourced. (laughs) Uh, So that's fun. There's a moment in the movie where she says, you know, the cactus puts out a flower that some people think, and then Matthau's character cuts her off. And I'm like, what do they think? What do they think? This is clearly (laughs) meant to be common knowledge, but I'm watching your movie 50 years later. I don't know about (laughs) cactus flowers. One interesting wrinkle that sort of adds a layer to all of this and would certainly have added something to the experience of seeing this movie in Japan Several English language sources credited cactus flowers for symbolizing lust in the Japanese sort of language of flowers. I wasn't very sure about that because, again, no sources. So I looked up in Japanese what is the symbolic meaning of cactus flower. Uh, And everyone that I found, again, not sources, but at least in Japanese, did list sort of passionate love or or like a, a passionate heart as one of the several meanings. I did wonder, though, because 
the whole movie keeps making us compare the cactus to Miss Dickinson over and over and over. She is the cactus, the cactus is her. But I also could have sworn that when the two of them go into the dentist's office one morning and notice that the cactus has flowered is also when the dentist has started to feel his first pangs of jealousy vis-a-vis Miss Dickinson. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. As much as we might not like that they end up together at the end, the two of them are very alike. Both of them are a bit older. Both of them have had experiences. Both of them are very content to be by themselves themselves. The dentist has lovers, but he doesn't want to get married. He doesn't want to build a life with somebody else. And at the beginning, he's so happy that he's found a solution which ensures that he will never have to. Oh, my God. (sighs) So he is also a cactus. Do we think the cactus then symbolizes not necessarily love, like we thought it might initially, but freedom or, or even just openness, a sudden coming out of the shell? Emerging from within the prickly confines. We did notice that Rekoa seemed more receptive to new type influence in this last combat. She also admits to herself that she has wanted to die. It's sort of the most raw and open we see her mm-hmm. ever. So that would make sense that, that it's about opening up. And this would not be the first time that Gundam has made a point out of the necessity of accepting the mortifying ordeal of being known. <laughs> the willingness to know and to be known, to connect. I mean, that's what the new type connection is. It is a moment of knowing and of being known. Maximal vulnerability. Which appears in the episode we talked about today, Storm over Kilimanjaro. For Camille, being that receptive is agony in this episode. Both the physical agony he feels when four is in the machine, and then the emotional agony he feels when he can't stop her, when he can't save her. Quattro, who is an unbloomed cactus, let us say, doesn't feel things like that. He can tell that something is pushing against his prickles. He doesn't have any part of himself that is exposed in that way. The mortifying ordeal of being known pops up in a lot of memes. (laughs) (laughs) That's where I got it. Uh, But apparently it is from a book called I Wrote This Book Because I Love You by author Tim Kreider. The full thing being, if you want to enjoy the rewards of being loved, you also have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known, which is so painfully, beautifully true. (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard it expressed so marvelously, which is clearly why it's caught fire on the internet. Again, highly recommend renting this movie if you like that sort of thing. We also got a kick out of it because it's a nice little snapshot into New York of the late 60s, which uh, feels surprisingly familiar to some people who moved to New York after the year 2000. Yeah, none of the bars or restaurants are still there, although a lot of them still look like that. But you can recognize street addresses and there's a funny scene in the Guggenheim. The apartments feel familiar. Some of the behaviors of people feel familiar. It's a little weird that she talks to her neighbor. But how long has she been in that apartment and they never meet (laughs) until the events of the movie? You know what? That's very New York. Yeah. A disaster happens and that's why you meet your neighbors. Here's a question that I'm stuck with. It's clear that this episode of Zeta Gundam was a reference to this movie. I think there are too many similarities Mm -hmm. for it not to be. And we have a pretty good idea from what we've been discussing what they were saying 
via that reference. Mm-hmm. But why? Why is this episode an homage to an old American movie from 20 years before Zeta was made? Somebody involved might have been a fan. They might have particularly appreciated the symbolism of the cactus. I mean, why does anybody put homages to anything <laughs> in anything? Because it's Absolutely. fun. <laughs> How many have we not found? How many other episodes have done things like this? Uh, patron Action Awesome pointed out that in the previous episode, when Yazan's Hambrabi stabs up through the groin and into the cockpit of Requa's Methus, it is very like a scene in Alien, which I had forgotten came out in 1979. Alien is older than Zeta Gundam. So they were almost certainly also referencing Alien, though at least like more recent for them and also... Also sci-fi. Right. I thought you were going to ask who is the Julian to Rekoa's Stephanie. That is an excellent question. I mean, if they were going to take it that far, it would have to be Quattro because part of the point of the movie is that, like you said, Julian is also isolated and learns that he wants to give that up. Yet in the cactus flower, Stephanie and Julian do end up together. In Zeta, Rekua very specifically leaves Quattro. But we still have many episodes left. That's true. Stephanie leaves. Stephanie like quits her job. She only comes back for her cactus. Could this be foreshadowing? But you know who in Zeta Gundam has a relationship with a much younger woman? Because it's not Quattro. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Is Sarah Paptimus's beautiful dumb idiot? Maybe. Ooh. I don't like it. I don't like it. For the most part, the movie is not what I'd call a gender comedy. These are these movies that were very common in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s as women's liberation was really taking off, as people's idea of gender was becoming more expansive and as those ideas were becoming more widely known. You have all of these movies that are about like the conflict between men and women, quotation marks firmly attached around that. And also about women's sexual liberation and like how do men actually feel about that? Because men's feelings were very conflicted about the fact that women could more easily have sex without worrying about the consequences. Like that was both a good and bad thing right. <laughs> for a lot of men. This movie isn't really about that, but there are elements of that, especially in the relationship between the dentist and the nurse especially towards the latter part where their feelings for each other are starting to cause them to butt heads. At one point, Dr. Winston accuses Stephanie of defeminizing herself. Later on, when she goes out and has fun, he gets very mad at her, very mad at the prospect that she might have engaged perhaps in some illicit sexual activity with a, with a much younger, younger man. man. And he even goes so far as to say that, well, it's appropriate for an older man to be with a younger woman, but for an older woman to be with a younger man, that's, was it shameful? Or obscene, or <laughs> he used some very strong language that was not warranted. And so the scene with Rekoa and Fa where Rekoa is talking about the genders kind of feels like it echoes that. And echoes the sense of rightness that... The movie ends in pairings, right? The movie doesn't end with anyone alone. The movie ends with people pairing off in these sort of complementary units. And it's just kind of assumed because that's how it should go. And I think some of what Rekoa is getting at is that to her mind, there is a rightness in the sort of like complementary pairing off of people in heterosexual relationships. And if you are an unpaired person, there is a problem with you and with that. 
Though certainly part of Rekawa's perspective is being quote unquote older, right? Rekawa is not old. She can't be more than like early 30s. I'm sure she's in her mid 20s. I think she's like 24. Which from a contemporary perspective seems pretty wild to us that she feels like she's supposed to have already paired off. Like plenty of people certainly do, but there are also many people who don't pair off ever now or who do later in life. And it's not considered that strange. Or who form alternative family bonds. But yeah, she clearly attaches a lot of importance to romantic relationships. It feels very significant to her that she doesn't have one. If you happen to know what people used to say about cactus flowers back in the 60s and 70s, please tell us. Or if you can think of any other old movies that Gundam has been referencing in prior episodes. We really enjoyed this, so more excuses to watch old movies. Definitely appreciated. Next time on episode 2.37, The Devil's Machine, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 36 and they really love those giraffes. Drugs and hypnotism. Bang bang, finger guns. I see you everywhere I look. Refrigerator guns, boot daggers, and oh yeah, Camille did karate. A seat belt. The unkillable Jared Mesa. For used Psybeam, it's very effective. And the same mistakes all over again. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Just because the Barzam is extremely phallic doesn't mean it means anything on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. The only thing we won't take is <laughs> from automobiles. <laughs> of Mobile Suit Down. Mobile Suit Down. Cute. I tried to change up my voices. You I think I did job. a pretty good job. I did a great job. Thanks, Carr. <laughs> I appreciate your beep of support. 
Well, and somehow the last time you got a cold, I didn't catch it at all. Which is wild. Right? Tom is the sickly one. I am. I'm so weak. I, my constitution is bad. <laughs> Good strength score. Poor constitution. <laughs> I should summer in the countryside for my health. At the seaside. Yes. Yes. Guys, help us afford a beach house. <laughs> it's necessary for Tom's continued life. <laughs> Just one easy donation of $1,000 will help us on our way to having a beach house. You need to buzz like a bee. I'm trying to buzz like a bee. Buzz a buzz a bee. I'm trying to buzz a buzz a bee. It was also weird to be at an age now where I'm watching this movie and... Tony says, oh, I'm 21. I'm like, oh, you baby. <laughs> no. <laughs> you tiny baby, be careful. Look out. <laughs> You're in danger, tiny baby. <laughs> Not to be patronizing. I'm sure many of you are around that age. Um, or even younger. I just remember myself at that age and how little I knew and how vulnerable I was. And so... Especially given what happens in the movie, there was this instant sense of protectiveness <laughs> for Tony living alone in New York City. Like, <laughs> There's a wild bit. She works at a record store and can afford her own apartment. It was the 60s, though. New York was cheaper. I know. I'm just saying. <laughs>